0: Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. That's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning, beginning in verse 12 and ending in verse 25. That's Mark eleven, twelve 12 through 25. And as you're turning, um, this passage comes at a, a providential time this week in the life of DPC. Um, many of you know this story that we're about to read. You know, whether you're inside the church or outside the church, you, you've probably heard this story before. It's where Jesus and just to use a common term, goes postal in the temple, right? There's tables, there's money changers, there's people with livestock, and Jesus walks in and just upends everything, right? Um, And well, why is that providential for us this week? Well, we've been looking in in the weekly Bible studies. This is when when we meet with the men and the women on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Uh, We've been discussing the fruit of the Spirit. And what we've said as we've discussed the fruit of the Spirit is, is that You know, these aren't just things that really just mark the Christian. These are things that we ought to do, and here's how we ought to do them. But really what they capture and what they embody is is God himself. And that's how he treats us. He treats us with love, with kindness, with peace, with joy. And therefore, that's kind of like our fuel to go out and do the same. Well, the fruit of the Spirit we were studying this week was gentleness. In other words, what we're saying is when we look at God's gentleness, this kind of directs us and how we are to exhibit our gentleness. But do you see the disconnect? How do we fit these two passages together? God is gentle, yes, we say this on one hand, but but why is he doing what he is doing here in the temple? Why the tables? Why is he so dialed up? Well, let's find out. This is Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, and saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Spirit, would you attend to us now this morning, for again we have wandered uh, into your territory. Spirit, this is the word that you inspired men to write uh, many years ago. Uh, You used them to put these words onto paper and And now, Spirit, we would ask that you would attend to us in a similar fashion. Would you illumine our eyes, uh, our ears, and our hearts to see the truth as it really is? In that, Spirit, would you also protect us from our flesh, from lack of faith, from unbelief, from despair? Give us the courage and the eyes and the ears to hear, Father, what you would truly have us hear. All for your glory and all for your name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm a patent, which means I come from a long line of, uh, of farmers. My great, my grandfather was a farmer. He grew uh, corn and soybean in Indiana. My father was in the business world, but we always had property, always had stuff growing. Um, and for me, it didn't come, this, this itch to, to grow things uh, and the love for things that, that grow and for gardening until much later. And here's how it happened. So it's kind of an odd story, so pardon the oddity here. But um, I was talking on the phone with a friend one day, and if you know me well... Um, you know that I, uh, I enjoy fruit, and, and the fruit I enjoy eating the most is grapefruit. So I'm talking with this friend on the phone, eating a grapefruit. I get a seed in my mouth, and I spit it out. It just happens to land in this this potted box on, on my patio. And so, you know, just with a half thought, I just kind of, you know, poked it with my finger and stuck it about, you know, an inch in the ground and forgot about it. <clears throat> a couple weeks later, what, what happens? This little green thing starts growing up, and I'm going, you know, what, what what is that thing? And then it took me a second to realize, wait a minute, that's the grapefruit seed. And I thought, man, how cool would it be to have a grapefruit plant in the house? So what did I do? I just kind of uprooted it. I put it in its own pot. And, and for the next 13 years, I've, I've cared for this this little seedling. Um, okay, now it's taller than me, okay? And I'm, I'm 6'6", and I'm pretty tall. This thing's, you know, it's huge now. And it's uh, unfortunately in our dining room right now, according to my, <laughs> according to my wife, because it can't, you know, endure the cold. And it's like a child to us. Um, no... It'll kill it. So it's, it's indoors for, for the time being. We'll see how long that lasts. But um, I've, I've, had this, I've had this tree for, for, for 13 years. And somewhere along the line, um, it, it just kind of grew from this, just, this, this mild interest to, well, because I love grapefruit so much, how cool would it be to one day actually have a tree that will bear its own fruit? Uh, how awesome would that be? So I, I started giving it special attention. And if you were to see it now, it's It's green. Its leaves are robust. It's, it's got the right number of, of limbs, you know, to the trunk size. You know, the root ball isn't growing in on itself. It's been very, very well taken care of. But for 12 years, I couldn't get the thing to bear fruit. For 12 years until last spring. Last spring was the first time in, in you know, the 12 years of, of, of nurturing this thing that when spring came around and all the new growth started to, to show up, it had one blossom on it. And again, this is a tall tree. It's as tall as me, just one blossom. And, and you know, you thought you would have thought it was Christmas. I was so excited. I moved it to you know, where all the bees were kind of flying around. I was like, oh, Lord, please let this thing just, just pollinate in, in fruit. And lo and behold, by October and November, I had a little fruit on it by the, about the size of my fist. Um, sad ending, though, of this story. Windstorm came through, knocked it off, didn't get to enjoy it. But big expectations this spring. I have big expectations. Well, we're dealing this morning with the topic... Of, of fruitfulness. Um, and actually, to be more specific, and what we're looking at our passage this morning is actually the absence of fruit. It's, it's fruitlessness. And, and here's some of the irony. Like my tree, um, the, the people of God are called to be this fruitful people. And, and when, you, when you look at them, especially in our passage this morning, their, their leaves are robust and they're bright green. And, and, and their, their stems and their limbs are hardy. And strong and you look at the roots and the roots are, are firm and they're deep. But there's no fruit. There's no fruit at all. And we're at we beg the question, why? Why is there no fruit? And and here's 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 the headline this morning. Here's where we're going. And here's what I want you to walk away with. I mean, when it comes to the question of what really brings fruitfulness in the heart of a believer, boy, you want to kick a hornet's nest, throw that question out, you know, to the church abroad. Everybody has a different answer. But what our passage is telling us this morning is when it comes to fruitfulness as God defines it. What causes true fruitfulness? It's faith. And I say, well, faith in what? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Two things this morning I want you to consider. Uh, for some of you, you're here at, at church, and, and perhaps your experience with the church isn't isn't long, um, and it hasn't been seasoned. And in fact, coming to church or um, or Interacting with Jesus scares you. You kind of feel like you're just outside of, uh, of a haunted house. Like, I've, I've heard passages about Jesus. I've heard passages in the Old Testament. Um, I've seen his wrath. I've seen his anger displayed. And I don't think I'm interested in that because I'm kind of scared of the guy. If you've ever thought that, stick around. This, this passage is for you. Maybe some of you were on the other end of the spectrum. We've been in church our whole life. And as we kind of sit back, and if we're honestly asking ourselves about our relationship with the Lord uh, and our relationship to the church, when Jesus gets to the point in the New Testament where he says to his disciples, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, on the inside we kind of go, well, it's not. Or at least I don't feel that way. Why don't I feel that way? Why is it that when I think about my relationship with Jesus, it feels more obligatory? It feels more dutiful? I don't feel joy. I don't feel peace. I don't feel liberty. I'm tired. And it feels like I'm tired for all the wrong reasons. Well, if you've ever felt that way, stick around. Um, This passage is for you, too. I want to look at three things um, from this passage this morning. Very simple outline. First and foremost is the parable. Uh, We're going to look at this tree. Second is the problem. And third is the solution. So those are my three points. Parable, problem, solution. Uh, It should be easy to follow along. Well, first... Let's look at this parable. Look with me again at verses 12 through 14, and then let's jump back down to verses 20 through 21. Follow along again. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, jump down to verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you you have cursed has withered. All right, Um, we're starting this morning uh, with with this parable. Um, And what we're calling it this morning is, is, is a miracle of destruction. Um, and and let me just say something um, from the literary side of things first Um, because if we don't understand this 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 passage won't make sense all the commentators said you want a confusing passage in Mark go to this one here's how we kind of make sense out of of what's happening here Mark is doing something it's a literary device called an inclusia where we have this situation in the temple this incident where Jesus is overturning the table and he's going to illustrate it by means of this parable and on each side of it he's, he's referencing this tree this fruitless fig tree so in other words, if you want to understand what's happening here in the temple, if you want to have, have good takeaways, if you want to understand it, um, then we have to understand what's, what's happening with this tree on the front end. So let's, let's address this tree first. And again, like I stated, I'm calling this a miracle of destruction. Okay? Why a miracle of destruction? It sounds like an oxymoron, right? Well, what is a miracle, first and foremost? A miracle is something that in, in Jesus' public ministry, he does to show that he's not just a man. That he's not just a human. We do celebrate that. He is 100% flesh and blood, son of Mary, adopted son of Joseph, right? He's man. But every once in a while, he will do these things where he's on a boat, and by the word of his power, he will tell the wind, done. And what happens to the wind? It stops. He will look at the waves, and he'll say, waves, no more. He doesn't touch them. He just speaks to them. Just by the word of his power, they stop. You know, to the blind person, he will say, See. To the lame, he will say, walk. And what this is meant to show us as readers is, is that, you know, this is no ordinary human being. This is God in the flesh. But that's not the only thing we're supposed to take away from, from miracles. They're, they're meant to show us something else here as well. Not only is he, is he not just a human being, but he's God in flesh, but he's, he's come to do something. Well, what has he come to do? Well, when you look at all of these things that, that people are being affected by, blindness, leprosy, you know, the inability to walk, you know, you look at the chaos of, of nature, these storms. I mean, we prayed for the typhoon in the Philippines this morning. All of those things are the effects of what we call the curse. Remember what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebel. And what happens? God says, now there's a curse upon you, right? You and your offspring and upon this earth, right? And we all experience it in, in different in unique ways. And what we see is when Jesus is performing a miracle, this is what he's doing. What does he tell me a curse? He's actually reversing the curse, right? Any Boston fans here? He's reversing the curse, right? Something that happened long ago, he's saying that even that has no power over me. So why can you now walk? This is what life is going to be like, without hindrance, without obstruction, without pain, without suffering. But at a couple points in Scripture... Jesus will perform not just this miracle that will show you know, him reversing the effects of the fall. He'll do something quite the opposite. He'll, he'll speed up the effects of the fall like he does with this tree. In other words, this tree has no fruit, so what does he do? He doesn't cut it off at the stump. He curses it. And within the matter of, of, of a day, what happens to this tree? It is dead. You know, from limb to root. And that, that takes a lot of energy to do you know, for a tree. He kills it. Okay? And, and the question is that we're all begging at this point is, is why? I mean, why so severe? Um, what's, what's what's he getting at? Well, as one commentator puts it, he says this is a lying fig tree. He says this fig tree promises something from a distance, but when you get close, it lies to you. Um, and and we're, we, we tend to think in, you know, American 21st century terms, you know, you can go buy a fig tree at any of the local nurseries, you know, here in town, and those are our version of fig trees. These are, these are Mediterranean, these are Middle East fig trees, which I didn't know this, uh, but I found it out this week and several commentators made this point that even though it's not the time for, for fruit, even though it's not, it's not season the season for harvest, fig trees in the Middle East would have these little nodules in the spring. Um, and they were very nutritious, they were very hearty. Um, and so you'd be walking by the road and if you saw a fig tree, even if it was out of season, you can go up and, and pull fruit and be nourished, nourished by them. And so um, Jesus approaches this fig tree and he finds none. He finds no fruit. Um, and, and so this is, you know, like the commentator says, a lying fig tree. In other words, this tree is not doing what it was created to do. And, and, and think about this. What is, what, is, what is a tree, what is a fruit tree created to do? It's created to give life to something outside of itself, isn't it? Its job is to produce fruit and give that fruit to something else so that other thing might have life and might have growth and might thrive and be nourished, right? And Jesus approaches this tree, and he doesn't find bad fruit. He doesn't find spoiled fruit. He doesn't find, you know, minimal fruit. He finds none. And so what does he do? He curses it. There's a parable in Luke where um, it's, it's a parable of, of a vineyard, and Jesus is speaking figuratively, but he says he comes up upon a fig tree, and it's been three seasons, and it hasn't borne fruit, and what does he tell the vine dresser? He says, pull it up. Rooted up. Because what it's doing, it's actually robbing the ground of nutrients. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of resources. And that's what's happening here. It's it's a lying fruit tree. It won't impart something outside of itself. Okay, now why is this important? Now remember, this is the lens in which we're going to look at what happens in the temple through. Okay? And what we're going to see is just as this tree is... It has, has leaves. You can see it from a distance. You know what kind of tree it is. It looks like it's going it's to bear fruit for you, but it's not. In the same way, we're, we're going into Jerusalem, and we're going into the temple, and we're going to see things that look like health. We're going to see things that look like goodness and vibrancy. But what he's going to say at the end of this, at the end of this story, um, at the end of the temple, is that there's no fruit, and something needs to be done. Okay, so, so what's, what's the problem here? There's a fruitless tree, and now there's a fruitless people. Look with me again at verses fifteen through seventeen. And they, being Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, and those who bought in the temple, and those who overturned the ta- excuse me. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, "Is it not written?" My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. It's of critical importance this morning that we understand whom Jesus is mad at here. Who, who is he so upset with and the real reason why? We're, we're tempted on the front end to think, okay, Jesus is mad with the, with the money changers and the pigeon sellers, right? Because it's their tables he's overturning. You know, it's their scales he's tipping over. But what we need to realize here on the front end is that um, these are people that, that needed to be there. These are people that needed to be at the temple. These are people that needed to be in Jerusalem. Why? Because remember what the temple and what Jerusalem was. Um, this was a place where, you know, just to put it simply, if you wanted to experience the heart and soul of God, if you wanted to see who Yahweh really was and how things work, where did you go to experience that in the first century? If you're not one of the disciples walking with Jesus, you would go to Jerusalem and you would go to the temple. Okay, this was supposed to be Eden Part 2. This is supposed to be where you're supposed to see the peace and the shalom of God lived out. Smell it, see it, experience, feel it. Okay? And we're tempted to think, you know, he's mad at the money changers. You know, they brought livestock around. And livestock, you know, they bring diseases. So it just makes sense. You know, he's mad at them. And he's really not. How do we know? Because these people have to be there. Remember, these people are coming in from out of town. They're bringing their sacrifices. Uh, to the temple. They have to get their money changed because if they're going to pay the temple tax, it has to be in Roman currency. So they have to do this stuff. Okay? And so so Jesus' anger here is not directed at them. Who Who is it directed at? Look with me at the end of verse 17. There, there's a little grammatical point here that tells us who he is focusing his, his sermon to and for. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, have made it a den of robbers. Who is he talking to? Who is the you? Who is the referent of that you? It's the chief priest and the scribes. He's talking to them. He's saying, I'm mad at you. I'm overturning their tables, but it's you I'm directing my energy to. And the question is, why? Okay, why is, why is Jesus so upset here? And, and without going into you know, a 30-minute lecture of, you know, and, you know, and diagrams of the temple, what we need to know is this, is that when God built the temple... And when he got to give the designs for the temple long ago, not only did he create places for his people, um, specifically for them, but his heart was so big uh, and his heart was so kind that he actually created this wall uh, around the temple that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And what this was designed to do was, again, as one pastor reminded us over this past summer, Christianity and, and what it means to follow Christ is an organization that cares more for the people outside of it than inside of it, as much as those outside of it as inside of it. We exist for our non-members. And we see that in the heart of God in the building of the temple, right? This is the court of the Gentiles. This is the court of the worldly. This is the court of the pagan. So why? So they can come, and they can hear, and they can experience. Listen to what Isaiah 56 says. This is a beautiful chapter in the Old Testament talking about the temple and what's supposed to happen there. Um, And this chapter is dedicated to the salvation of the nations, people outside of Judaism, people outside of Israel. Just two verses. This is verse 7 and 8. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Recognize that? That's what Jesus just quoted. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares... I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Okay, so you see what's happening here? And do you see why he's so frustrated with, with the chief priest and with the scribes? They've taken this area of the temple, and, and they're robbing the Gentiles of worship. And one commentator kind of did the math on this. They said, you know, when it comes time and the season to come to the temple, you could have, you know, in, in a week, 200,000 people coming through the court of the Gentiles to exchange money and to buy livestock. How easy is it if you're a Gentile to pray and worship with all of that going on around you? You can You see what's happening here? The Gentiles are being excluded from the worship of God. And not only are they being excluded from the worship of God, note this, and this makes this even more stark and more uncomfortable, the chief priests are actually getting paid for it. Because remember, all this is happening on temple property. And anytime you go overseas and you exchange money, right, there, there's overhead. Somebody gets a cut somewhere. Who's getting the cut here? It's the religious leaders. Okay, so not only are they excluding the nations um, from the worship and the glory of God, but they're actually making a profit. You can begin to see why Jesus is beginning irate here. It's the same reason why, you know, when someone comes between a mother and a child, we have the, the syndrome called mother-bear syndrome, Right? Or a step between, you know, a husband and his bride. Threaten a bride. What will the husband do? He'll go crazy, right? That zeal and that passion you see in those situations, that's, that's the zeal of the Lord here for His children, for people outside the church. You are actually hindering. You are becoming an obstacle to people understanding that I have come to rescue and that I have come to help. And you're going to profit off of it? That's why I turn your tables. That's why I throw you out. This is going to be a house of prayer. What is he telling you and me? He's signaling to us that with a tree, that not only is he judge, he is the one that can rightly judge the hearts of men, but he's also the high priest. That's why they start to conspire behind his back. One commentator puts it this way. and Remember, we're in the context of our parable, the tree here. You know, the tree had all the talk, all the tinsel, and all the trumpetry. I I couldn't say it in the first service either. Rewind, delete. This tree had all the talk, all the tinsel, all the trumpetry, but no fruit. Same goes for the people. There's talk. There's vibrancy. There's the appearance of health and robust life and, and, and social norms. And everything looks great, but Jesus comes in and says... All that's great, but you know what? There is no fruit here. There's no fruit. Okay, so what's, what's then is the solution? How do, how do Christians and those in Christ grow and bear fruit and bear good fruit? Well, Jesus is going to tell us here in verse 22. Look with me again at the passage. He says, very simply, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Well, what on earth does that mean? He's saying if you want fruit, you've got to have a tree. You've got to put your faith in something, right? Um, and, and, and in this case, the Pharisees, the, these, these, the chief priests and the scribes are showing us what they have their faith in. And it's not the Lord. And so the question is, is what do they have their faith in? Um, just to put it simply, it's in themselves, right? Who profits from their obedience? Who profits from their observation of the law here? Who is it? Is it The Lord? No, we've already established that. Who gets the credit here in this situation? They do. And, and, and do you see the irony here? These, these are the experts in the law, right? If you, were, if you had a question about the law, you'd go to the chief priest. You'd go to the scribes. You'd go to these guys who write the law day in and day out. And they have forgotten. They've forgotten Isaiah 56. They have forgotten the heart of the Lord himself. And so by excluding the Gentiles and excluding these people, but tithing you know, a tenth of their mint. You know, if they found a leaf of dill like out on the street, they would pick it up and tithe a tenth of it because we are going to obey the law. We are the law keepers. The law is our life. That is our marrow. That is our spine. And what did they end up doing in their observance of the law? They ended up breaking it. The very heart of it. God's very love for the nations. We're tempted here Oftentimes, like the like the the Pharisees, these these religious rulers, the scribes, the chief priests, um, aren't we all individually on the outside? We have robust leaves; we look good; we're clean cut; we have deep roots. You know, my dad was an elder in the in the church long before me, and his father. We have deep roots, strong limbs. You know, good work. You see what the Lord here is saying? We can have all of these things all of these appearances, the, the, the look of of strength and energy and robustness and actually be entirely fruitless. Entirely fruitless. Okay, so what's the answer? The answer is faith. But faith in what? It says faith in God. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Um, if, if you have, have been... Your experience with the church has been one that has been ruled by fear. You've seen Jesus or you've seen Yahweh act in the Old Testament in such a way that you just went, "That guy scares me. He seems out of control. He seems angry. He seems wrathful. I don't, I don't don't think I want to be any part of that." And in fact, that's deterring me from actually being a part of a church. Well, consider this. It's true. Um, What he is telling us in this passage is that he is the judge. And by the word of his power, through this miracle of destruction, he decides who lives and who dies. But notice this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I never realized this until this past week. But Jesus never performs a miracle of destruction on a person. Did you catch that? Jesus never performs a miracle of destruction on a person. There's a herd of pigs that, that get the short end of a stick. This tree doesn't end well for him. But Jesus never, even though he's rightly entitled to, because he is judged, he never performs a miracle of destruction on a person. Why is that? It's because of this. What we celebrate when we celebrate Calvary and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is that at that moment in history, what the Father does to the Son is he takes all the wrath from the chief priests all His wrath from the scribes, all of His frustration from the religious leaders, all of His frustration from you and from me. And in one moment in history, He pours out all of that wrath, unbridled, unhindered, on whom? All who deserve it? He performs a miracle of destruction on whom? Jesus Christ. Why? So that those who have faith, like this passage tells us, faith in God might say, Lord, if it is indeed true, and if all the wrath is on Jesus, then be merciful to me. He got what I deserve. He got what I earned. He got what was coming to me. He never performs a miracle of destruction on a human being. He does so on his son. Let me just say it the same way, but in a different way. There's nobody on this earth who has ever fully experienced the unhindered, unbridled wrath of God. Nobody in this room has ever experienced that before. You may have experienced his discipline, his correction, but you have never experienced the full-born wrath of God. There's only one person in all of creation who has experienced that. And it was at one moment, and it was on Calvary. And that was our brother, Jesus Christ. So what's the good news for you this morning? You don't have to fear wrath. You don't have to fear the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus took that for you. And so what does it mean to have faith? Look with me again at verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Prayer is like the copper conduit between God and us. It's how we exercise faith. Okay, we just don't stand here and say, exercising faith now, how is faith exercised? It's through prayer. It's asking, Lord... May the the wrath and justice you poured out on Jesus cover me. Be merciful towards me. Let Jesus' wrath cover my sin and my brokenness. That's believing in God. That's having faith in God. What God does, he does it on your behalf. Lord, I receive it in faith. Do that and you will be fruitful. On the other side... You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you know your your life in Christ has been has been hard. Again, and not to be repetitive, but you know, when you come to that point in Jesus' ministry where he says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light, you just go, I know that, but I don't feel it. I'm tired. I feel like all I do is, is I feel like I've got this little angel on my shoulder looking over me all the time and I'm just not measuring up. I'm exhausted. I'm tired, and it doesn't feel like I'm tired. I'm not tired in the right way. I'm tired in the wrong way. What does this passage have to say to us? It's this. As American Southerners, we do a good job of of preaching about the justification and speaking about the justification of, of, of sin. Um, but when we read scripture, we, we learn of something, and pardon the technical term, but we've got to know this. Okay, this is, this is kind of nuts and bolts Christianity. It's called the double imputation. But as Southerners, we're only good at single imputation. And here's what I mean. When we talk about God, you know, just publicly, you know, what has God done for you? Most answers include simply just this, that, that God died for my sins. Okay, so if there was a, a taking and, and a giving, um, God took my sins. And we would say, Amen. But that's half the truth. Here's the other half. The other half is this is that when Christ takes our sin and our unrighteousness, so that when the Father looks at Jesus, he sees us. And therefore he directs his wrath at Jesus. Did you know we get something in return? Well, yeah, forgiveness. Yeah, but you know we actually receive something from Christ in return? You know what we get? We get his robes. And his robes are white. We get his faithfulness. And that's saying something. Because Jesus lived for 33 years. Jesus went through puberty and and cleared it. He made it. 33 years, faithful and obedient. Jesus says, you get that. So when the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees perfection. And when God's going through his list of you must be perfect, holy, righteous, he's going check, check, check. Why? Because you did something? No, it's because Christ said... You get my obedience, and you get my righteousness. That's why it's double imputation, not single. So what's the good news for you? If you felt like your life with Christ has been such a burden, and you're just like, I'm just, I'm not humming. I'm not singing here. It's hard. It's, the good news for you this morning is, is that your obedience and your righteousness and your faithfulness sits at the right hand of God the Father right now. And like this passage says here in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and you will be yours. Maybe you need to ask the Lord for that this morning. Faith, belief, that my obedience is at the right hand of God the Father. Now, side note, does that mean we as Christians, therefore, have no use for the law? Is it gone? Pastor, are you telling me that I don't have to obey God anymore? Well, no, I'm not saying that. But let me ask you this question. If your obedience is trying to initiate something with God, you might be more like the scribes and the chief priests than you'd like to admit. But if your obedience is a response to something God has done in your life, you're bearing fruit. When someone does something incredibly kind for you, and I'm not talking about like a favor, but I mean like pays a debt, helps you out in a difficult situation. What is your natural inclination? It's to go, I want to love that person well. I want to respond. And the Lord says, well, how do you respond? Look at the law. That's how you respond, in gratefulness. But the only way we can respond in gratefulness is if we truly believe that our obedience is at the right hand of God the Father. If not, we still feel like a slave. We still feel burdened. We still feel like we have to do something here to capture the Lord's attention. Like, Lord, over here. Look at me obeying. You see me? Is this good enough? What's the good news for you? Be done with it. You don't have to do that anymore. Now you can obey out of joy, not out of fear, not out of duty. If God is your tree, and if your faith is in Him, and you receive this faith, this belief in Jesus Christ, good news, friends, is you'll bear fruit. Let's pray, and let's ask the Lord for this faith. Lord, help us your truth, sometimes it sounds so good it's, it's scandalous. We're looking for the fine print. We're looking for the asterisks. We're looking for the catch. But may it be so in our heart, Father. Let us truly rest and receive in the work and, and the efforts of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Let that be our hope. Let that be our marrow. Let that be our spine. May it be said of us um, that we are great lovers, children, heirs of God. And as such, Father, may we bear much fruit for your name and for your kingdom's sake. Amen.